Take your Bibles and go to Matthew 25, Matthew 25, and uh, that'll be the final time that uh, I'll walk up with that uh, kind of bumper video. It's one of my favorites that um, we've used uh, for sermons, and this is a as we come to the close of our series in the parables called Tales of the Kingdom, today we're going to uh, look at Matthew 25, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 46, and the title of the message today is called The Final Separation. And so if you would, let's pray one more time as we think about such a weighty theme. Father, we Come to your word, acknowledging that it is divinely inspired, it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will prepare our hearts to receive the word, and that Holy Spirit, that you will do your work in us as believers, that we will watch and we will be working until that day Christ appears. Help us to live in a healthy fear of the Lord. Help us to consider the eternal weight of the truths that are going to be before us this morning. Help us to feel the the weightiness of what Christ did to grant us peace and salvation and the burden of those that we know who are lost. And for the person here that's lost who may not have the assurance of salvation, may the truth of what is yet to come stir in their heart in such a way that they will flee to Christ for salvation and that they will leave here today with a full assurance that when they, when they enter into eternity that they will be in your presence forever and not in hell. And pray that you, Holy Spirit, that you will empower the preaching of your word, that Christ will be exalted and that it is rightly divided and that your work will be done in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Matthew 25, and we're going to look at verses 31. We're just going to read a few of these verses, and then we'll walk through the rest of them as we move forward. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on his glorious throne. Just let's read that again, and I just want you to think about that. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the most memorable scenes in what is my favorite book and favorite movie, Lord of the Rings, and the Two Towers, is a scene, for those of you who are familiar with it, called the Battle of Helm's Deep. And in this scene, all hope appears lost and for the people of Helm's Deep. And Aragorn, one of the key characters, remembers the words of the great and wise 
wizard Gandalf, who has left the company to gather another army. And before he leaves, he tells Aragorn and that company, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look at the east. And then suddenly, as they're in the midst of battle, defending the city, there on the horizon, Gandalf appears in bright light, dressed in white, riding a white horse with an army behind him. And because I'm just kind of nerdy that way, every time I watch that scene or read about it in the book, I cannot help but picture the return of Christ. Tolkien was a Christian. I have no doubt that in some way that he had to have that in his mind as he was writing that. But really better than all of that, movies and literature, better than all of that is the passage in front of you today. And again, read the passage. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. That little phrase, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, takes us to the very theme and heart of Matthew 24 and 25. Who will appear? The Son of Man. And it's interesting because here Jesus, as he now closes out a series of parables about the second coming, it is here that he does something that he doesn't do a whole lot in the Gospels. He actually asserts his title, Son of Man, or that is, he asserts his messianic role. He actually asserts the fact that he indeed is the promised Messiah, the Son of Man that was promised to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And in fact, this verse 31 is hearkening back to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, which reads, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here in this passage, as Jesus is delivering his final sermon called the, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus now claims, I am that person Daniel spoke about. And not only that, he is just about to go to the cross, read on into the next chapter. He is going to go to the cross and there he will die on the cross. He will be crucified. He will be buried. He will rise again. And what he says here in Matthew 25 and here at the end of Matthew 25, he promises that one day he will return. How will he return? How will he return when he comes again in what we would call the second advent? He will come in his glory. That's what the text says. More brilliant than the sun rising in the east. More dazzling than a lightning storm over the ocean. Christ will one day appear in the clouds. And unlike the first advent when he was born in the manger. Unknown by, really undetected by the rest of the world. Except those that God had brought to 
Him in Bethlehem. When He comes again, when He comes again, His glory will not be veiled as it was in the first advent. His glory will be visible in the second advent. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that He will appear in flaming fire. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 And the Apostle John writes in Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. And so friend, when He appears with all the angels with Him, everything else will stop. Everything will stop. And if we are alive when He does return, everything in our life will stop. It will be the end. It will be the end of time. It will be the last day of human history. It will be what the Scriptures call the great day of the Lord. And the great day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The last day of human history is judgment day. I'm not talking about Hollywood. I'm not talking about literature. I'm not talking about the, uh, something that we have seen on television or in the movies. We're talking about the end of history. And the scripture is clear. The unbeliever will wail on that day. The unbeliever will look to the rocks and cry out to the rocks to fall upon them on that great and terrible day that the Lord appears. But the believer, the Christian, will be eagerly watching for that day as the Lord commanded in Matthew 24 and in the parables we've looked at in the previous weeks. And the Christian will be laboring, will be working, ready for the day the Lord appears. And so why will he appear? Well, we've already said it. And that's the whole point of this passage in front of us. The key kingdom truth that we want to highlight today is this. Christ will return soon. Christ will return in his glory to judge all people and determine our eternal destinies. That's what this whole passage is about. That he will appear to judge all peoples and determine their eternal destinies. And so, ladies and gentlemen, what you have in front of you here this morning is a first-hand description by the Son of God of what it will be like on Judgment Day. There is something parabolic about it, but unlike the detailed parables of the past, really the parable here is just a metaphor. Sheeps and goats being separated. But here in this passage is an actual account, a description of the last day of human history, Judgment Day. And you're going to see three things that is clearly revealed in this passage. You're going to see the eternal sovereign on the throne. You're going to see the eternal state of the blessed. And you're going to see the eternal sentence of the cursed. Those three things we're going to see this morning as we walk through this passage. And what I hope weighs upon us is the reality that on this day all people will be judged, including you and me, and our eternal destinies will be forever sealed. 
And so let's consider first the eternal sovereign on the throne. We've already looked at it, verse 31 through 33. And if you notice in verse 31, the first thing you observe is, is that when the Son of Man, when Jesus Christ appears, he will sit in the position of judgment. That's the whole point of that phrase. He will sit on his glorious throne. Yes, it is a powerful vision. I mean, the, the imagery is, is provocative. But it's to indicate to us That he is seated on his throne because he is going to be the one to execute judgment. He has been given the authority to judge all people. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5. And he has given him authority. That is the Father in heaven. Has given the Son, Jesus, authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. There's that phrase again. Daniel Seven. And Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And see, here in Matthew chapter 25, what you see is exactly that. He will sit in the position of judgment and notice what happens. Look at the text. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations. What a, what an image. All the nations will be gathered before him in judgment. This means Jews and Gentiles. This means the living and the dead will be raised to appear before him. The religious and the non-religious, the rich and the poor, the known and the unknown, all people will stand before Jesus Christ. It includes every prince and every monarch. Every president and every senator and every politician, every single man, woman, and child will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment. And that means me, and that means you. All of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Is that not sobering to you? Is that not stirring to you? Does that not for you, Christian, simply stimulate just a a bit of, of joy yet mixed with fear? And for you who may not be outside of Christ, does that, does that, does that not stir you with concern? That doesn't matter what you think or what you believe or what you assume. This is the truth of God. This is what is revealed to us from heaven. That we will all stand before The judgment seat of Christ. And notice what the text says is that not only will he sit on a throne, on the, in the position of judgment, he will separate all people for judgment or in judgment. He'll set the, he'll, he'll set the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. But, but note this. He will separate all people. Write that down, because that's what it says in verse 32 and 33. And this is where you get the parable element to what he's teaching. A short metaphor to illustrate what will happen on Judgment Day. You don't have to guess what's going to happen on Judgment Day. There's basically going to be a division. There's going to be a division, and people are going to be put into two groups. Those two groups already already exist. 
And here's the two groups that all humanity is in right now, even right now. There are the lost and the saved. The sheep and the goats. Right? That, that, that's the, that's the division. Now, now, now here's the thing. The sheep and goats here, for, to, to build on that, on that metaphor, in, in, in ancient Israel, even today, sheep and goats were not easy to distinguish. It took a skill. It took a skilled, sharp shepherd to distinguish the sheep from the goats. The hair of a goat is much like the wool of some sheep, especially in warmer climate. And so a knowledgeable, skilled shepherd who lived among his sheep and knew his sheep personally would be the one that would be able to tell the difference. And that's what's happening here. The point is clear. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd. And he knows who his sheep are. And on the day of judgment, he will separate them from the goats. And the goats are the unbelievers. So again, let me just reiterate, what is happening here is the text is impressing upon us the reality of two distinct groups. One group will find favor in judgment, and the other will not have favor in judgment. And so where that applies to us, you're either saved or you're lost. You're either converted this morning or you're unconverted. You are either for Christ or you're against Christ. You either live in light or you dwell in darkness. You are either on your way to heaven or you are on your way to an eternal hell. And there is no in-between. There is no middle road. There is no fence that exists. There is never a middle option. And that is why it is so important for everyone here this morning to examine their hearts. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? And here's the reason, here's another reason why that's important because there are some who appear to be sheep. That is, they outwardly appear to be Christians, believers. But within their own hearts, they've never experienced true salvation. This has been emphasized in previous texts. That some do Christian things or religious things. They've walked forward in a service. They've said, they've repeated a prayer. They've, they've gone through some kind of religious ritual, but they have never experienced inward transformation by the work of the Spirit that, that results in repentance of sin and trusting Jesus Christ for salvation. The, the, the reason why that must be emphasized is because of this. There are people who say they're Christian, but they are, but inwardly they possess no true love for Christ or really any desire to please Him. And where that really falls into our consciences this morning is this. You may be able to fool others, but on the great day of judgment, you will not be able to fool the sovereign shepherd who knows our motives, who discerns our thoughts, and who exposes our hearts. And so think about that for just a second. Don't pretend to be a Christian. Come to Christ and possess salvation through faith in Him. And so the kingdom question that that then is, is impressed upon us by this one sovereign who is sitting upon His throne, who will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep and goats and will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. What this 
what this impresses upon us is, do you recognize Christ's sovereignty and authority? Did you see what it says? He will separate people. There's no democracy here. There's no poll taking here. There's no vote cast here. He will execute judgment on the basis of his own perfection and holiness. And so there'll be nowhere to hide. And therefore, when we think about this this reality, he's going to set the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The right always represented in ancient literature. It would represent in, in ancient biblical literature. It would represent favor. And on the left, the dominant right, the less dominant left, would represent disfavor. And so this morning, do you recognize Christ's sovereignty and authority? Are you ready for judgment day? That's the question. And here's the good news. The good news is you can be ready. The bad news is you may not be ready. And so that's why we need to consider the next two points. Consider then the eternal state of the righteous or the blessed. Verse 34. Let's look at the text. So in verse 33, he has set the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And now judgment, now, now, now he's prepared everyone for judgment. And so look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. You gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And so for just a second, let's just pause and just consider verse 34. But notice now that the Lord refers to himself as the king. Isn't that interesting? That's a theme in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the promised king of Israel who would come and ultimately be the one who would be the king of all the nations. And so the Lord refers to himself as the king fitting for this gospel and a reminder of his sovereign authority over those to whom he speaks. In other words, whatever he says, it is done. And first he speaks to the sheep on his right. Notice the king addresses them. Come. You, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He gives them a sure invitation. So to the believer, to the Christian, to the, to the one in Christ, he says, come, enter, welcome. His arms are open to his beloved sheep. He loves his sheep and he lays down his life for them. Nothing is more precious to the great shepherd than the souls of his redeemed sheep. And on that judgment day, here's where if you're a believer today, you can take a sigh of relief right here, right? Because on the day of judgment, what will happen? He will invite the believer to be with him forever. That's the invitation. But why is that the case? Well, notice he gives them a blessed identity. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Do, do, do you see this, this word blessed by my Father? The word blessed, blessing, is to be shown loving kindness. To have received grace. To have received loving kindness. They have been blessed by my Father. And what that is just simply an indication to is, is that by grace... They have been saved 
through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ they have been made righteous. The other title that is given to them in the text. Through Jesus they have been forgiven of their sin. Hear me. They are not blessed because of their works, but they are blessed by the Father because of Christ's work. And it is Christ that has made all the difference in their life. Again, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And so you need to drop this pen right here because what happens in what the king says is the first thing he does is he extends the invitation. He he gives them a blessed identity acknowledging what they already are because of the Father. And then he gives them a prepared inheritance. The invitation, and it's full. The invitation to those with this blessed identity is an invitation into a prepared inheritance. He invites them into Emmanuel's land. This is them entering into heaven, into the eternal state, into the land behind beyond the seas. That fair haven of rest. Come, Jesus says. Come, says the king. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And believer, Christian, listen, here's what's beautiful about this. It is at that moment that believers will experience the full extent of God's covenant of grace. God's plan of redemption was decreed when? Before the foundation of the world. When was Christ a lamb slain before the foundation of the world? The triune God who designed and executed and fulfilled the whole covenant of grace. Here it comes to its full completion. And so God's plan of redemption was decreed before the foundation of the world. He chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. And He prepared our eternal inheritance before the foundation of the world as the Son of God committed Himself to be the Lamb slain to purchase us for His kingdom. All of human history is moving toward this moment. And when we enter that kingdom on that day, on that day, when we enter into that kingdom, what will happen? Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you know what he means when he's referring to the former things? Sin and everything that has resulted from it. Imagine that believer. A life in existence where we no longer sin. Where we no longer think or commit evil. Where we no longer fight and wrestle with our flesh. It'll all be passed away. And He will make all things new. Because that's what it says. He who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And you know when he began that? He began that when he saved you. And he completes it on the day of Jesus Christ. 
This is how the king addresses the sheep. To remind them of who they are. And to remind them of what they have. But, but notice the second thing that he does here. He assesses them. And I started reading that a moment ago, but let's just keep reading. It says, for I was hungry and you, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this assessment, hear me, follows the address. And it includes a list that proves that they are indeed true sheep. In other words, this is not how they become sheep. This proves that they are sheep. Don't get that out of order. Because if you get that out of order, you'll have a social gospel. And you'll think that the way of salvation is by doing kind things for people. Now last week I misspoke. I said that I hate lists. Actually, lists are good and helpful. It is not helpful in what I don't like is when we create lists to control or condemn ourselves or others for not being perfect or we use these lists as boxes of merit. I think we'd all agree on that, right? That's problematic. And so and I, I do become contentious when, when people want to charge me for not being perfect. But the point is, is that lists in the Bible serve us in how we're to live. As believers, they help us examine the patterns of our lives and the affections of our hearts. Here are a couple of helpful pieces for interpretation. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to dig down to every single one of these. What do these six things that, that, that the Lord, the King says that, that the sheep or that the believer did, what do they indicate? Two things. They love the King and they live for the King. Those two things. They love the King and they live for the King. Jesus uses the I and me pronoun. You, you, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And what that is indication is that the sheep, those that are true believers, they love Christ. They have received Him. They treasure Him. He is the object of their faith and the motive for their service is because He has saved them, blessed them. God has brought them into His kingdom And what they do shows their love and devotion of the king. I hope that makes sense. And then the other part of this is they live for the king. Their lives are marked by love and care for Christ. Particularly what Jesus has in mind, which he says in in verse 37, is he has in mind his messenger sent to preach the gospel. He's sending the disciples out. He sends his messengers out with the message of the gospel. And, and, and those that receive those messengers and in turn receive the message, in that way they have done these things. And so, the, the way we would understand this quickly is like this. Think about how this plays out in the visible church. We receive Christ through the message preached. And then we receive one another with love. And then that love overflows toward others. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in 
us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the mark of a true believer is an overflow of God's love that has saved them that results in kindness and mercy and love towards others. And the first visible place we experience that is in the local church. That's why in First John he talks so much about how can you see your brother in need and just ignore it? How can you, how can you look at, a, at another believer and not love and not forgive and not forbear and not be patient and not be kind and not be these things? You, you, you can't. Because the nature of the true believer is driven by the result of, it is the result of salvation. And so these different things, I was hungry, you gave me food. Is it, can we walk away and say we should look and take care of need? Well, sure. But if we look at that and then create a grid and say, as long as we check these boxes off, that means we're a Christian. We've misunderstood the whole point of the passage. They love the king. They live for the king. And then notice in verse 37, the king astonishes them quickly. Then the righteous, how are they righteous? Well, they're blessed by the father. They have been saved by God's grace. They answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And that's where we get the connection to other places in Matthew's gospel where he talks about the least of his brothers are the messengers being sent with the gospel. And so the way then that plays out, that rolls out, is that the demonstration of salvation is receiving Christ, receiving the messengers of Christ, receiving the message of Christ, and then in the church receiving and loving one another, and that results in an overflow of love and mercy to those around us. All acts of Christian service flow from hearts transformed by the power of the gospel. And notice that they're stunned. When did we do these things? Indeed, they did these things, but never for merit, never for boasting, never for recognition. They did these things not with a checklist to say, look, I did it. I, I did my Christian duty. No, these things were just the results in their life. Did they do them perfectly? No. That's what we were getting at last week. No one does any of these things perfectly. No one loves perfectly. No one lives perfectly. But the affections of a believer's heart is to love and please Christ. And the works in a believer's life is works that are good and pleasing to the Lord. But no believer would say, look what I've done. I deserve heaven. Here's what, I like what Sinclair Ferguson says, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. That, that's why they, 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 these, that's why these sheep say, wait a minute, when did we do these things? Well, it was just the overflow in their life of what God had done in them. And so a good question to ask yourself is this, will you spend eternity in heaven? Will you go to heaven? Will you enter into the eternal state? Will you share eternal life, the blessed life that is to come? And if so, is your life marked by love for Christ and a desire to live for him because he has saved you? See, there's the real question. Do Is there a love for Christ? Is there a desire to please him? 
And does that manifest itself in real tangible ways in the body of Christ and then as we go out into the world and we see a world in need beginning in our homes and then going all the way through. And so that's the eternal state of the righteous. But then what happens is in verse 41, notice, we see the third thing. The eternal sentence of the cursed. Now, I mean, one thing, if we could just end there. End on the joyous note that the believer enters into the blessed state. But there's the other group, the goats. And we have the eternal sentence of the wicked or the cursed, to use the language of the text. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so here Jesus, the king, speaks to those on his left. And oh, the terror of what he says to the unbeliever. There are a few things here to observe. One is there is a pronouncement of eternal condemnation. And so notice what he says, depart from me you cursed and what that indicates to us is that hell is a place of eternal separation because that's where these go that's where the unbeliever goes this is a description of hell eternal hell the lake of fire those apart from christ those who are not saved are sent away condemned cursed underline that cursed Those who are not saved are cursed. And to be cursed is to be severed, to be separated, to be exiled, to be completely banished. It means to be cast out. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, what happened to Adam and Eve? They were put outside of the garden. They were cast out of the garden. They were banished from the garden under the judgment of God. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that all the world is condemned. In other words, every, every person is under the condemnation of God in their natural state. They are under judgment. Why? Jesus says because they love darkness more than light. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, then you are under the judgment of God. But right now, you don't have to remain under the judgment of God. You may trust in Christ. You may be delivered from condemnation forever because He went to the cross. And on the cross, He experienced the full weight of God's wrath for sin. On the cross, He became cursed so that the believer would not be cursed. Jesus Christ experienced on the cross what no believer will ever experience. Do you know what that is? Condemnation under the wrath of God. And so this morning, if you go to hell, you will be condemned forever under the judgment of God. You will be separated from Him. You will be separated from life. You will be separated from all hope forever. And the implication of this text is clear, is that there will not be any more opportunities. There are no second chances. When the judgment comes, the judgment is settled. And so, hell is a place of eternal separation. That's why today is the day of salvation for the unbeliever. But the other thing that you see here is in verse 41, there is a place of eternal consignment. 
He says, depart from me, you cursed, into what? What does the text say? It says, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the cursed are consigned to eternal fire. And here's what that tells you. Hell is not only a place of eternal separation, hell is a place of eternal suffering. This is illustrated in Revelation chapter 20, another place in the New Testament that is describing what Jesus is actually saying right here. Read it, it's on the screen. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open, and then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you not see the terrifying description that is laid out before us? The Bible is utterly clear. Hell is a place of suffering in eternal fire. Friend, if you are to die and you are to go to hell, if you are to face judgment and and go into the lake of fire, you will not cease to exist. You will not be annihilated. You will exist forever in consciousness. In fact, Revelation chapter 20.10 says that those who go there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And unless one repents and trusts in Christ, they will spend eternity in hell, conscious forever, cursed forever. Cast out forever in eternal fire. Now hear me. That's not emphasized much these days. In fact, very little is said about hell. But the reality is Jesus said a lot about hell. And I don't think that hell should be used to simply scare people. But I'll tell you what. Jesus taught that we should have a healthy fear of hell. Don't fear those who can harm the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, Jesus said. You see, the truth about hell shows the wickedness of sin, the wrath of a holy God, and leads us to fear the Lord and to flee to Him for salvation. If I just be transparent with you. The primary reason that I came to Christ is a fear of God's wrath and judgment in hell. Did the Holy Spirit do a whole lot of other things? You bet. But when I considered the eternal consequence of sin, the Holy Spirit awakened me and caused me to go to Christ for salvation. And so there is a pronouncement of eternal condemnation. The eternal sentence of the curse, there is a place of eternal consignment. But the last thing you see here is there is a problem of eternal consequence. And the problem is revealed in the assessment that he gives to the unbeliever. And look at the text. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also answer saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And so there you have the opposite of, of what we said about the believer. Observe, they did not love the king. They did not love the king. They had no interest in Christ. They had no regard for Christ. They had no regard for His salvation. They rejected His messengers. They rejected His message. They refused to believe. And here is the consequence. And how do we know that they refused? Because of how they lived. They did not live for the king. They did not love or serve the king. They did not love or serve his people. They did not over, there was no love and service overflowing from a heart transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the indication of this text. It's not because they didn't do enough for those in need. It's because they had no desire to serve the living God because they were not regenerated and born again. And so when you come to the end, what you really see is, is that we are saved by grace, but grace will always produce in us good works. Good works, not, perf- not perfect Christian life, but works that illustrate what God has done in our hearts, that manifest themselves in love and in kindness and in service to Christ and to others, starting in his church and moving outward. And so that leads us to this kingdom question. Will you spend eternity in hell? I know that's a sobering question to ask. Have you repented of your sin and committed yourself to Jesus Christ? You know why that's important? Because all of us will have to stand before Christ at the judgment. He will be the eternal sovereign on the throne. He will be the one that will separate the sheep from the goats. He will be the one that will address the sheep and give the eternal eternal state of those that have blessed with salvation. And he will be the one that will give the eternal sentence to the wicked. And so in conclusion, look at verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. There it is. There's the next day, if you will, after the last day of human history. There's the first day of eternity. I mean, imagine that. Forget everything you've got going on in your life, everything that's so important and pressing for the day. Where will you go? These on the left will go away into eternal punishment because they refused to believe. They never repented. They did not believe the gospel. But the righteous, the blessed, those that receive grace from God will go into eternal life. They will enter into a real eternal heaven of bliss and eternal blessing. Where will you be? Spurgeon said this, On which side of Christ are you today? I want you to question yourselves about that. If you are on his right hand, you are among his people. If you're not with him, you are against him. And so are on his left hand. That which parts the saint and the sinner is Christ. 
And the moment a sinner comes to Christ, he passes over to the other side and is numbered with the saints. Three questions. Will you come to Christ today if you're not saved? Where will you be found standing on judgment day? Where will you go on judgment day? Heaven or hell? I'm going to pray this morning. And before I pray, I'm not going to ask you to stand. We're not going to do that. I'm just going to pray. And so for a moment, I just want you to bow your head as, as, as I'm, I'm going to pray here in just a second. And in a moment, we're going to observe communion as a church. And, and Pastor Dan's going to come as we prepare to, to worship the Lord. But, but as you bow your head, I, I want you just to think for just a moment. And as I pray this morning, if you're not saved this morning, if you're not sure what will happen to you on the day of judgment, while I'm praying, I just want you to quietly slide out of where you're sitting and just make your way to the back. And there will be folks back there that will be standing ready to help and speak to you about what's been shared this morning. And so you do that. If the Holy Spirit is calling you to step forward to Christ, you make your way to the the back of this auditorium, even as I pray. Father, we come to your word with a sense of trembling and awe. We thank you for the one who sits on the throne. And for the believer here this morning, we simply give you praise for Christ, for salvation. Every believer in this room would be able to testify to the the wonder of your grace, the transformation that you have worked in our hearts. And we give you praise for the hope and promise of eternal life. For those that are outside of Christ, if even right now, if even right now they're convicted over sin, wondering what to do with the things that have been proclaimed from this text this morning, may they find assurance. May they speak to someone today. And may they walk away with confidence that their faith is in Christ, their sins are forgiven, and that they've been made righteous. I pray that even now you would do that work in our hearts and that you would prepare us as believers, as a church, as we come to the table this morning, as we break the bread and we drink the cup. We can do that looking ahead to that day in that eternal kingdom when we feast with you forever and ever. And so I pray that you'd fill our hearts with joy. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Our response to